Just a heads up, this episode is going to have some language in it that people might find offensive. This is Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shereen Marisol Miraji. Gene, have you ever heard this song? No, it's like it's like Devo, something from the 80s. It sounds like it, but it's not. It's from this Portland, Oregon-based rock band. They're probably better known for the Supreme Court case about their band name than their actual music. They're called The Slants. Oh, that's The Slants? They've been in the news a lot lately. That is true. Here's The Slants frontman and bassist Simon Tam talking about how he came up with the name. I started asking some friends about, you know, I, I would say things like, what's a common stereotype? What do you think all Asians have in common? And... You know, the first response I got was like, oh, slanted eyes. Simon thought naming his all-Asian-American band The Slants could, one, be a way to reclaim a racial slur. Number two, I said, oh, we could talk about our slant in life as people of color. But as it turns out, there was another band called The Slants, so Simon wanted a trademark registration. But his application was denied because the trademark office, the patent and trademark office in Washington, said that that name was a slur. And that's when his legal battles began. And those battles took him all the way to the Supreme Court. And here he is in January, just hours after the Supreme Court oral arguments. In his case, he's talking to an audience in D.C. He's in a community hall, so it's a little hard to hear. But he says he's been thinking about and trying to figure out a way to fight this racial slur thing since the eighth grade. I was in the schoolyard and I was just getting pummeled and uh, the, these kids uh, were just yelling at me and they kept yelling at uh, these racial slurs. They kept um, calling me a gook and a jap over and over again as they're, as they're kind of beating down on me. And I remember at one point I was just so frustrated I turned to them and I said, you know what? I'm a chink. If you're going to be racist, at least come at me with right racism. I mean, step your bigger game up, homie. (laughs) Step it up. Anyway, six months after Simon gave that talk, his Supreme Court case was decided. Our teammate Kat Chow has been following this story, the slant story, for four years. What's good, Kat? Hey, guys. All right, so bring us up to speed on this court decision. Basically, the court decided to strike down part of this 71-year-old law, and that bit of law is in Section 2A of the Lanham Act. And among other things, it prohibited any trademark that could disparage or insult anybody who is alive or dead. But the court said just last month when deciding the case of the slants that that bit of the old trademark rule, it violates free speech protections and that the government was engaging in viewpoint discrimination. Because lawyers in the trademark office who are government employees were deciding what's appropriate and what's not, right? Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court said, hey, that's not cool. And the decision could have these really big ramifications for other trademark registration cases about controversial names. Oh, pick me, guys. Pick me. Pick (laughs) me. Um, This is the Redskins, right? The Redskins, the Washington football team uh, here in D.C., where Kat and I are. And we should just say the Redskins, uh, we're going to be talking about the name. So we're going to say it here. We know a lot of people find it offensive. So I just got to say that. So a couple of years ago, a federal judge actually canceled the team's trademark registration because, you know, it said it violated Section 2A of the Lanham Act, which is what you're talking about right now. Yeah. And these are exactly some of the concerns that people had, that if the Slants won the case, they'd be saying it is okay for Redskins owner Dan Snyder to continue to make money off of a slur for Native Americans, people like Ray Hulbritter. I am the nation representative of the United Indian Nation, and I've been involved in the Change the Mascot issue for a number of years now. 
When I called Ray up, he wanted to emphasize this part of the really brutal history of the slur redskin. There was a time when there was a bounty placed on American Indians. Uh, There was $200, for example, for a male Indian scalp to prove that you'd killed him. $100 for a woman because they were considered less, I suppose, threatening. And uh, for her scalp, there's $100. And then there were a, a lower amount for children's scalps. According to these Smithsonian historians, the early historical records, they say that redskin was used as this self-identifier for Native Americans to kind of differentiate themselves from white colonists. We know here at Code Switch that language is always changing, and the word redskins became really negative, and white people used it in a very violent way. So I'm taking it Ray Halbritter was not sanguine about the Supreme Court decision. He wasn't happy with it. I mean, but at the same time, he told me that the Slant's eight-year battle put a spotlight on their own with the Washington football team. And it's a fight that is now a moral issue, he says, not a legal one. One of the most respected civil rights leaders in America was once asked about a poll, Wade Henderson, suggesting that some people in America don't find the name offensive. And I think he responded perfectly when he stated, quote, the fact we're poll testing a dictionary-defined racial slur against Native Americans shows how much we've ignored and continue to ignore their basic humanity. If you poll tested slavery before the Civil War, the majority would have supported it. It doesn't make it right. So Ray Halbritter was not exactly happy with the Supreme Court decision in the Slants case. But I'm sure Dan Snyder who was the owner of the Washington Redskins, did not feel that way. Yeah, I'm sure people dumped a Gatorade thing on his head. (laughs) He said he was thrilled with the decision. I mean, a lawyer for the football team also told a USA Today reporter that the decision, quote, resolves the Redskins' longstanding dispute with the government. So even though Simon Tam was saying it was his free speech to reclaim a racial slur, the slants, he dealt a major blow to a movement trying to stop another one from being used. Mm -hmm. And there was this one group in particular that had an interesting stance. It was Asian Americans Advancing Justice. They're a legal group in D.C. They filed an amicus brief in support of neither party. And they said there should be a middle ground where slurs shouldn't be allowed, but the rules could be tailored to accommodate reclamation efforts like the slants. Well, I mean, there's no middle ground with this decision, right? I mean, the court blew up the rule against disparaging marks. Yeah, that part of the Lanham Act is no longer there. I mean, I called up John Yang. He's the president of AAJC. And I asked him about this. And he said that they're disappointed with the decision. From our perspective, the court oversimplified what really is a little bit more nuanced analysis. The bottom line is what this case allows is for organizations or individuals to profit from using a racial slur or a disparaging term. John told me the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office should have a right to prevent an individual from profiting off a disparaging term. Like, he says that they really get and understand that the slants is trying to reappropriate a term. But, I mean, even so, that's not the right way to reclaim something, he says. If we're talking about reclamation efforts, it really should be a group effort. It just can't be one individual or one organization that tries to do it alone. In fact, in this particular case, by allowing them to have a trademark, what it allows them to do 
is have an exclusive right to it so that no other organization or individual could be part of that effort in many ways to to reclaim that term. So it sounds like what John Yang is saying here is how can registering the slants be a reclamation project for Asian Americans if necessarily the trademark registration means that only Simon Tam can use it anyway? I mean, And I think that's a really good point. Yeah. It is, it is. Also, I can't stop thinking about how the patent and trademark office is going to do their jobs now. Right. Like, is everything racist just going to get a green light? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, in considering the fact that how the patent and trademark office did their job before was completely haphazard. We're going to talk more about that after the break. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Ingredients come paired with an easy-to-follow recipe card delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get your first three Blue Apron meals free, plus free shipping, by visiting blueapron.com slash codeswitch. Hey y'all, Sam Sanders here. These days I feel like I can't make sense of the news until I've talked it out with my friends. So I made a new show where we do that every week. It's called It's Been a Minute. That's my way of saying let's catch up. Find It's Been a Minute now on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. Gene. Shireen. Code switch. All right, Kat, so the Supreme Court blew up a piece of the Lanham Act, Section 2A, which prohibits people from trademarking disparaging names, Mm -hmm. like, you know, the Redskins. Mm -hmm. Right. I just can't help but wonder how the lawyers at the Patent and Trademark Office used to decide what was disparaging or constituted a slur. Well, it, it was really case by case. I mean, what gives these trademark office lawyers the cultural competence to be these arbiters of what's disparaging or, or not. I mean, yes. our colleagues at Planet Money, they did this really nice job explaining that on an episode about the Sands case, which aired before the decision came down. And Planet Money's Elsa Chang and Jacob Goldstein heard from this former PTO lawyer named Rebecca Gann. Rebecca told the story about a magazine by and for Jewish people called Hebe, which is a slur, that applied for a trademark registration. I had a subscription to Hebe magazine, right? So I was not offended, clearly, because I had a subscription. Rebecca wasn't the lawyer assigned to that case, but because she's Jewish, one of her colleagues asked her what she thought. I am sure that grandmothers and other folks in the community probably did does or did feel that he was probably offensive because they grew up with stories of their grandparents getting beaten up and having that insult hurled at them. So she said, even though I subscribe to this magazine, I don't think we should give the name Hebe the federal government's stamp of approval. She told her colleague we should deny the application, and that's exactly what happened. This is clearly not a science, right? This is like, well, let's think about it. Let's ask our colleagues. And this this system can lead to what seem like really inconsistent outcomes. You see this in particular with trademarks that are sexually explicit. Like, for example, Rebecca told me she personally rejected a trademark for the phrase meat holes because she thought it was too dirty. But there are all these other super explicit sexual terms that have been approved by the trademark office. I talked to Megan Carpenter. She's a law professor who studied this, and she listed off a bunch of these approved terms. Dirty bitch, drunk ass bitches, 
edible crotchless gummy panties, ego testicle. And just to be clear, these are actual names where some lawyer at the government has looked at an application and said, okay, you got it. Registered trademark. Flea market hookers. Fupa pouch. Fuster cluck mad in the USA. (laughs) Okay. Megan's saying a few things are going on here. One is the process is just a pretty random process. It depends on which lawyer at the trademark office gets assigned to your case. But she's also saying you see meaningful changes as societal sensibilities change. All right. So there were some funny parts in there, I must admit. (laughs) There were. But on a serious tip, listening to that makes me think about Ray Halberder and how he says this is a moral issue, um, not a legal issue now. And he's the guy that we heard from before who leads that Change the Mascot movement. Maybe he's betting societal sensibilities will change and people won't be down with that Washington team name anymore. So, okay, we look to the past. Let us look to the future. So how, Kat, does the Supreme Court decision change the way that the Patent and Trademark Office do its job? Well, I walked over to Elsa's desk with a microphone and I asked her. I see you're going through your papers now. I'm getting my big slants folder here. So now that we've got this decision, is everything changed now? Like, is the PTO going to just let all of this racist stuff through? Well, it's hard to say, right, how the ugliness of human nature will unfold. I was just talking to a trademark lawyer last night, and he thinks absolutely this is going to open the floodgates and racists are going to get their kicks and register a bunch of really hateful marks. On the other hand, if you talk to some other trademark lawyers... You know, maybe the haters and jerks and the racists and homophobes and misogynists of the world will get their kicks out in the short term. But it's expensive to register for a trademark. It costs a couple hundred dollars to a few hundred dollars. You have to upkeep the mark. You, like, maintain it in relation to a good or a service. And it's just so much easier to be a racist for free. I mean, you can yell at the top of your lungs something racist. You can put it on a shirt. You can hang up a banner without paying the PTO anything sort of fees. Yeah, but I mean, what if you owned a brand that was already valuable? Like, look at the Redskins. Again, they're worth around $3 billion. That is so much money. It is. They're, you know, they're one of the most valuable franchises in American sports. Mm. Here in D.C., you see burgundy and gold everywhere in the fall. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So this is this enormously profitable, valuable brand that happens to have a racial slur for its name that the team owners will certainly want to protect. So, I mean... Yeah. I I hear you. And just to keep going, just last week, the Justice Department wrote to the U.S. Court of Appeals saying the court should reverse the judgment of a lower court that took away the Redskins trademark registration. And we know this Washington football team example is just one example. We're going to have to keep tabs to see if a bunch of new racist slurs get trademark registrations in the future. But right now, what I want to know is... What does Simon Tam think of all this? He won this major thing that he's been fighting over for years now, and it's a really messy win. And it's his fault. So I did call Simon up to ask him, and he told me about the day the decision dropped. He was not expecting it. I didn't set an alarm like I usually do. I just woke up, went to the bathroom. I came back and I saw that I had 753 notifications on my phone, uh, which... At that point, I knew something had happened. He went on Twitter. He saw a tweet that said, the slants won. And he opened up his email and saw a message from his lawyer that said, congratulations. 
Of course, he found out on Twitter. <laughs> I know. I think it actually froze his phone, all those notification and texts probably. He says he was so inundated that he didn't even have the chance to really process the decision and think about it until he had to mow the lawn later that night. I'm just kind of going over and over again throughout the backyard and just having time to, to fully think about everything, like thinking about the people who were vehemently opposed to to our case. And I thought, you know, in, in many ways, they're right. And then I thought about the people who struggled against the law. I thought, we're right too, that I wish there was room in the law for more nuance. But, but when you put it in the hands of, you know, subjective opinions of people who don't have any cultural competency uh, in terms of training, that ultimately, at the end of the day, will end up losing again and again. They're just these moments of just brilliance and then moments where I just feel, you know, deep depression as well. I completely get that reaction. And also this has been a major life moment for him, something he's been working on for years and mm -hmm. now it's over. I can imagine he's having a crisis of purpose. I mean, maybe. This is the first time in eight years when he can, in theory, focus on his music, which is something he's been telling me for a long time he's been wanting to do. And he did say he wants to use his band's platform now to advocate on behalf of the Native Americans against that Washington football team. Mm, you're skeptical. <laughs> can you just feel me side-eyeing like, through, the, through the microphone? Yes, I can feel it all the way over here in L.A. I mean, it's, I, don't, I don't know, man. Like, if he wanted to protect the band's name, there were a million other ways to do that, short of, you know, appealing all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. Which is a long process yes. and a lot of money. Eight years, like you said. He said he sees this as a victory for social justice, but does he get why a lot of other people, other activists who care about racial justice issues might be also side-eyeing him? I think he can see that. I mean, I don't think there will ever, ever be a clear line through all this. Once again, <sighs> on Code Switch, we're not going to tie this up with a nice bow. That's it. That's our show. And we're going to end right there. Thanks, Kat, for joining us. <laughs> sure, of course. And before we close out, Kat, we've been asking people to share the songs, giving them life. And what song is that for you? Well, lately, the song that's giving me life is called Meticulous Bird by Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. I don't know who's getting any, I don't know who's giving what I want a pity, such a pretty city, there's no children, I don't see them on the runway, they bust them in on Sundays, the visitors are meeting to decide if you can come stay. I love it, I love the drums. This singer is Tawin, she is... Awesome. I love her because she's just like so unapologetically strong and she's a woman of color. Follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Codeswitch and we want to hear from you. Email us at codeswitch at npr.org. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. Our producers are Walter Ray Watson, Maria Paz Gutierrez, and Leah Danella. Original music by Ram Team Arabaloui. And a special thanks this week to Elsa Chang of the Planet Money crew for hanging with us. And a shout out to the rest of the Coast Wish fam, Adrian Florido and Karen Grisby-Bates, as well as our intern, Aleli Maywelta. Our editors are Sammy Yenigan and Steve Drummond. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji. Be easy. Peace. Hey, it's Guy Raz here. If you love this podcast, you might also love the TED Radio Hour. It's a show about what it means to be a human. 
We grieve, we experience joy, sadness, love, and jealousy. We can be cruel and empathetic. We have the capacity to imagine the future and the past. And at a time when it seems we're so divided, the TED Radio Hour explores what makes us unique among all species. Find it on Apple Podcasts, the NPR One app, or however you get your podcasts.